Take a Bible. John chapter 1 is our passage. There are notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with what we're going to talk about this morning. John 1, we're back to our series, Believe, walking through the Gospel of John. We had Dr. Stinson here last week. Uh, He was here for our marriage conference, and then he preached Sunday morning as well. Just to remind you of where we've been in John, we spent three weeks in the prologue, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. And this morning, when you get to John 1, verse 19, you actually get to the storyline of the Gospel of John itself. The first 18 verses are important, but they're really sort of a summary of everything that's about to follow in the gospel. Verse 19 is really the beginning of the story itself. And throughout the gospel of John, one of the things you're going to find as we go through this study is there's a lot of conversation. Okay, There's a lot of dialogue. There's more conversation and dialogue in this gospel than in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And some of it gets kind of dense, and some of it is very extended and complicated, and you really have to engage your mind to track with what's being said. But we're introduced to that theme or that style of writing right out of the gate, and there's a conversation between John the Baptist and a group of people that John, the author of this gospel, refers to as the Jews. And I just think it's helpful before we dig into the conversation itself and think about what John had to say to know some of the people who were involved. And so this may be review for you, this may be old news, but for some of you this may help you put some of the pieces together. So let's start with this, just putting some of the names out on the table. In Moses' last sermon, he promised, this is Deuteronomy 18, he promised that God would send another prophet to Israel. He said, when I'm gone, I'm not going in with you, and at some point down the road, God is going to raise up another prophet, and you need to listen to that guy. And the Jews were waiting, and they were waiting, and they're waiting. And God sent many other prophets, but they were waiting for the prophet, capital P, prophet. And so here's John. He's out preaching in the wilderness. He's saying things that are very prophet-like, and they come to him, and they say, are you not a prophet? Are you the prophet? And John's answer very simply is no. Secondly, let's talk about Malachi. Old Testament prophet Malachi promised that God would send Elijah before the day of the Lord. That's Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6. The last words, the very last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi says, before the day of the Lord comes, God is going to send you Elijah. And so when John says, I'm not the prophet, they say, well, maybe... You're Elijah. You dress like Elijah. He wore a garment of camel skin, and you're wearing a garment of camel skin. He had a leather belt. You have a leather belt. He did crazy things out in the wilderness. You're doing crazy things out in the wilderness. He was sustained sort of miraculously out in the wilderness. You're out here eating locusts dipped in honey. He told people to repent and get ready for something. You're telling people to repent and get ready for something. He, he told people judgment was going to come, and you're telling people judgment was going to come. And we know he's going to come back. Malachi said he's going to come back. Maybe you're him. Are you Elijah? And John simply says, no. This is interesting. Because you may remember from the Gospel of Luke that before John the Baptist was born, an angel The archangel Gabriel showed up and talked to his parents and said, your son, this baby that you're about to have, is going to serve and minister and preach in the power and the spirit of who? Elijah. He's going to pick up that mantle. 
And when people ask Jesus, who is John the Baptist? Jesus said things like this. If you have ears to hear it or eyes to see it, he is the John or he is uh, Elijah who was promised. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was promised. What John means when John says, no, I'm not Elijah, is God didn't raise his bones up out of the grave and bring him back to life and then that's me. I'm not literally John. But what Gabriel, the angel, and Jesus, the Messiah, are saying to you is, he is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the the Elijah, quote-unquote Elijah, who came before the day of the Lord. So there's a little bit about Malachi. Let's talk about the Jews. The back and forth is John the Baptist and the Jews. John, in this gospel, he mentions, quote-unquote, the Jews 71 times. Sometimes he doesn't mean anything by it other than identifying a group of people. But usually, in this gospel, when you read, quote-unquote, the Jews, these are the Jewish leaders who actively opposed Jesus. And if you just look in the text at verse 19, it says that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. This is an official delegation from Jerusalem, the religious epicenter of Jewish life, and they're sent to check out this new teacher. And verse 24 says they had been sent from the Pharisees. This group of Jews, John the author of the gospel says, are Pharisees. And so I'm going to pull a few quotes from a Jewish historian named Josephus and tell you about the Pharisees. They were experts in the laws of their country, and they enjoyed the highest esteem of the whole nation. I understand that when I say Pharisee, you think bad guy, right? It's like Rorschach test. You see the image, and you just instinctively, you see it, Pharisee, bad guys. Pharisees, hypocrites. Pharisees, guys that killed Jesus. Pharisees, you know, they're the worst of the worst in the Gospels. When the people saw that the Pharisees sent a delegation out, they didn't see them as bad guys. They said, the bad guys are coming out and being baptized by John, the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes and the the filthy, dirty, nasty people. This official delegation, these are the good guys. The good guys have finally arrived on the scene. They saw them as heroes. They saw them as people who lived their lives in as best they could, very, very godly ways, people who knew the Scriptures and who taught the Scriptures. They enjoyed high esteem. But when you read through the Gospel of John, you keep reading about the Pharisees, you keep reading about the Jews. John describes these people as surveilling the common folk, spying on them. He describes them as promoting propaganda, things that they know are not true, pushing an official story so they can hang on to their own power, and they're the ones who eventually lead to Jesus' arrest in his crucifixion. So that's the Pharisees. That puts some of the people just in the conversation, puts some of these names on the table. You've got John the Baptist, we've talked about him. You've got the Jews that he's having a conversation with, the Pharisees. We're talking about this prophet, and we're talking about Elijah, and we're talking about all these different players, all these different pieces. The focus is not any of those people. The focus is not the Jews. The focus is not John. The focus is not the prophet. The focus is not Elijah. The focus is Jesus. And throughout this passage, very short passage, just over and over and over and over again, things that we learn about who Jesus is. And the big idea that we're going to focus on is this. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I know that there's other things said about Jesus in this passage. But when you read through it, that's the idea that dominates. That's the idea that's new. That's the idea that if you're reading through the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, you come to this verse, John 1.29, and you say, I've never heard it said exactly like that before. Matthew didn't talk about that. Mark didn't say it that way. Luke didn't, didn't bring it up in that light. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The focus is on Jesus. Here's the remarkable thing, and, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. The focus is on Jesus, but John is important. He really is important. In all of the Gospels, he's right there at the beginning of the story of Jesus. And so it's worth asking ourselves, what is so important about John? Why does he show up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the very, very beginning as somebody who's pointing other people to Jesus? And so the question we'll ask is this, why was John the Baptist a central figure in Jesus' story? I'm going to give you a couple of reasons. Very simple message this morning. Why was he so important? Number one, John knew who he was not. He knew who he wasn't. There was no question in his mind who he was not. Have you ever been around somebody who liked to talk about themselves? Yeah? Just think about the last time you sat down with somebody. Maybe they wanted you to know how much money they had. Or maybe they wanted you to know how smart they were, how educated they were. Or maybe they just wanted you to know how funny they were. Or maybe they just thought that whatever was happening in their life was of so much interest and importance that you would want to hear every detail of it. Maybe they just wanted you to be impressed with you know, something they had accomplished in life or some experience they had had in life. But I bet you can think of someone. All they want to do is talk about who they are. I'll be real honest with you. Pastors may be the world's worst at this. And it's okay for you to nod and say amen to that. You won't hurt my feelings. I mean, sometimes I go out and I eat with other guys and we sit down over lunch and, you know, you do pastor stuff all the time. Sometimes you don't want to talk about pastor stuff. You just want to talk about normal stuff, regular stuff, whatever. And sometimes you sit down with a guy and you just think, do you have anything to say that doesn't involve you? All you want to talk about is you. All you want to Tell me is all these great things that you've done or things that you've accomplished or things that you've learned or things that you've, you know, gone through in your life. You know people who can't quit talking about themselves. And John, I just want you to understand, John had a golden opportunity to lay his resume out before this delegation. He had a great resume. We'll just put it up on the screen, okay? John the Baptist's resume. When this group shows up and says, who are you? We have been sent to figure out who you are. No one knows what, what to do with, with you. We don't have a category to put you in. John could have said, well, in case you missed it, I'm the first prophet in 400 years. Here, I'm here. 400 years, God hasn't said anything to you through a prophet. And all of a sudden, I'm here. He could have said, I'm the one whose birth was predicted by the archangel, Gabriel. He showed up and he told my parents that I was going to be born. And it was a miraculous birth. My parents had been trying to have kids for years and years and decades and decades. And they never could do it. And Gabriel finally showed up. It was a miraculous birth. I was named by God. God told my dad what to name me. 
God named me himself. You want to know who I am? This is who I am. I'm the one who was filled with the Holy Spirit while I was in the womb. Right? I'm in my mom's womb. Jesus is in Mary's womb. The two ladies walk into the same room, and the Holy Spirit moves me in her womb to jump and wiggle around because the Messiah is there. I'm technically the first one that ever recognized the Messiah. That's who I am. Dancing in the womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. My dad was a priest. I've been a Nazarite from birth. I've never cut my hair. It's not just because I like the style. It's, it's a vow to God. I've never had a drop of alcohol. It's not because I'm not interested. It's a vow to God. I've separated myself from that. I've never touched any dead thing ever in my life. That was the Nazarite vow. Don't cut your hair. Don't touch anything dead. Don't drink alcohol. I have not done any of those things. It's not because I'm trying to earn my way with God. It's just that I'm set apart for a special purpose. That's who I am. He could have just laid it out. Who are you? And instead... John chapter 1, verse 20, he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. John, the author of the gospel, wrote it that way for a reason. He's not just trying to be redundant. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to say to you, there was no, there was no question in the mind of the Baptist of how he was going to respond. It wasn't that he wrestled with, should I, is this the time I should lay my resume out on the table? Would it be appropriate now? No, absolutely not. He confessed. He did not deny it. And he confessed, I am not the Christ. He knew who he wasn't. And he was quick to say it. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. You understand that he had a following. There was people. They were coming out to see him. They were listening to him. They were hanging on every word that he said. You understand that the Jewish people at this point in history are anxious for revolution. They hate the Romans with every part of their being. And there's multiple stories of charismatic figures rising up, creating a platform for themselves, claiming to be the Messiah, and the Jews were quick to follow them. It happened over and over and over again, and they said, we're going to kick Rome out. Are you with me? And they were with them. And John had all these people. They were eating out of the palm of his hand. All he had to say was I'm the promised Messiah. And they would have formed a militia inside of an hour and they would have been ready to fight and give their life for John the Baptist. They would have done it. And he has this golden opportunity to raise up an army for himself. He has this golden opportunity to lay out his resume so that everyone stands back and applauds and says, Oh, well, now we are going to listen to you. We didn't know all of those things. Now we're going to listen. And instead, what he's focused on is who he isn't. Who he's not. Do you know who you're not? You are not the final authority about right and wrong. God's not entrusted that to you or me. He's revealed it in his word. We submit our lives to the authority of his word, but we are not that authority. Do you know that you are not called by God or entrusted with the responsibility of judging the motives of other, other people? That's not you. That's not on your resume. Do you know that's not on your resume? Or do you think it's on your resume? It's not there. 
Do you know that you're not in control of your life? Your failure or your success. That's not in your hands. And for you to take credit for either is for you to put something on your resume that doesn't belong there. God's in control. You're not in control. I'm not in control. Parents, do you know that you are not the one who can save your children or make them Christian? That is not your job description. You have the job to teach. You have the job to bring them to church. You have the job to set an example for them. You have the job to to discipline them when they need it. But you are not the one who can change your kid's heart. Husbands, wives, Dr. Stinson talked about this last week. Do you know that you are not capable of sanctifying your spouse? You can't change them. That's not your job description. So many times in life we go off base because we start to add things to our resume that don't belong there. And John the Baptist, look, he's not Jesus, and we don't put him on a pedestal with Jesus. We don't even put him as uh, 1B right behind Jesus. But there's something to learn here from a guy who knew who he was not. He knew who he wasn't. Secondly, he knew who he was. He knew who he was. John 1, look at verse 22 and 23. They said to him, Okay, you're not the Christ, you're not the prophet, you're not Elijah. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John, rather than lay out his resume, he goes back to the scriptures. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. We won't look it up, but you can look it up later. Isaiah 43. And he says, I am the voice of of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Literally, if you go back to Isaiah 40 and you look at that verse, what the verse says is, make the highway level. Right? This is a verse from Isaiah about road construction. And John gets put on the spot and they say, okay, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this. Who are you? we got to give them some kind of answer. He goes back to the scriptures and he says, I'm the one put in charge of the road construction. Now, you live in Odessa, you know something about road construction, right? We're not Dallas, we're not San Antonio, we don't have the big highways and all that stuff, but sometimes lately you wish we had some of those big roads. Because you get on 42nd Street at 5 o'clock and you just sit at the light and you don't go anywhere. You get stuck, right? There's some road construction. It's been going on on 42nd, just west of Grandview. And that's the route on Monday evenings at rush hour that I drive to take my kids to piano lesson. And every week I forget they got that lane blocked off. All that traffic's coming down to two lanes. And you're going to get stuck there and you're going to sit there. And every week I'm thinking, oh, we're late. We're late. We're late. I don't like being late. It makes me anxious. I just feel uneasy in my soul. And I forget it every single week. And I think I wish that this road was wider. We need five more lanes on 42nd Street, or we need a double-decker 42nd Street, or I don't know. We need, we need road construction. It's an issue, and you've been in that lately. You've seen the traffic in our little roads and all these cars, or you've been on the oil field roads out in the country where the trucks just line up one after the other, and they, you just wait, and you wait, and you wait. You know, sometimes you need a bigger road. Isaiah 40 is about road construction. You say, that's not very spiritual. Of all the verses you could pull from the Old Testament, you pull one about road construction. Get the road ready. Isaiah was talking about the exile and the exiles coming back. 
And Isaiah was saying to the people, you're about to get kicked out of the promised land. And then God's going to bring you back to the promised land. And when he brings you back, it's going to be great. It's going to be so great that we need to get the roads graded. And we need to get them level. And we need to make it easy for these exiles to come back. And he wasn't really talking about, you know, get out there with the road grader and fix the road. It's, just, it's poetry. And he's saying, get the highway ready. Because when the exiles go, someday God's going to bring them back. He's going to restore them. And of all the verses that he could pull from, John the Baptist, they say, who are you? And he doesn't lay his resume out. He pulls the road construction verse from the Old Testament. And he says, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm not even important enough to drive on the road. I'm just getting it ready. I am not the Christ. I'm just making it easy for you to get to him. I'm not trying to put myself up as somebody that you should follow or listen to. I'm just trying to get you from point A to point B where you need to end up. Get the road ready. He knew who he was not, and he knew who he was. Do you know who you are? It's important to know who you're not, but you also need to know who you are. And every day in the United States, in the year 2019, you face a multitude of temptations to find your identity someplace that you ought not find it. Every day you face this temptation. Every day I find face this same temptation. Are you, there's many people in our culture who would say to you, find your identity in your sexuality. That's the one thing that ought to define you above everything else. That's who you are. Other people say, no, it's your profession or your education level, or your income, or maybe it's your ethnicity, or what generation are you a part of, or some combination of those things. The world has all of these metrics that they want you to say, I'm this. This is who I am. This is my identity. And you face the temptation every day to listen to the world and to take the world's categories and try to fit them into your life and say, okay, I guess this is who I am. Or you can listen to the Scripture. That's all John did. He didn't lay his resume out. He just said, let me go back to the scriptures and see. What does the word of God say? I'm the road construction guy. That's who I am. I'm the voice calling out, follow him. All you have to do to know who you are is go back to the scriptures. You are a creature. You're a creature made intelligently, specifically with purpose. You're a creature created in the image of God. And you have value because God made you to reflect his image. You're also a sinner. You have fallen short of God's standard. You have not lived up to his expectations. You've taken his authority and you've looked at it and you have spit in his face and said, I'll do it my way. You're valuable. You're created in his image, but you are a rebel. You are a treasonous rebel. And you, not the angels, not anything else in all of creation, but you as a human being are one of the ones that Jesus came to seek and to save. That's who you are. You can take all the world's categories and you can say, oh, no, 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 I'm this first, I'm that first. Well, this is my heritage. Well, this is my sexuality. Well, this is my income level. Or this is where I live. Or this is where I want to live. You can use all the world's metrics or you can just go back to the scripture and you can say, who am I? I'm a creature, a human being created in the image of God. I am a sinner, someone who has rebelled against my creator. And I am someone that Jesus came to seek 
and to save. You need to know who you are and you need to know who you aren't. I read a story this week about an Italian conductor. His name is Arturo Toscanini. I won't try to use an Italian accent. Arturo Toscanini. Apparently he was famous. Late 1800s, early 1900s. Some of you may know the name and, and know the face. Uh, this was like, you know, before the top 40 charts, this was the guy. He was conducting orchestras and people thought he was the greatest and uh, read some fascinating things about him. He just had a, an incredible memory. You could play any note at any point without any frame of reference and he could tell you what note it is. Uh, he could play music on the spot. He could compose music uh, that he was listening to. He could just put it down on paper. As a conductor, he was known for his perfectionism. I mean, he wanted it to be just perfect. And people loved him, and they went to his, his symphonies and all of these things. There's a story told about Tuscanini that he's leading his orchestra, and it's in New York City. It's the biggest uh, symphony house in town, and they're doing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So they go through the whole thing. They play it. It was a, a classic Arturo Tuscanini performance. I mean, it was perfect. There was not anything wrong with it. It was flawless. And at the end... They turn around and the audience stands up and they just, they're going bonkers. They're clapping, they're hooting, they're hollering. They're doing whatever they do in the early 1900s to say, this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. And they stand, conductor and orchestra, and they bow as they normally do. But before they quit applauding, Tuscanini turns around and he looks at his musicians. And he looks at his musicians and this is what he said. He said, gentlemen, I'm nothing. Gentlemen, you are nothing. Beethoven is everything. This is a guy who knew who he was and he knew who he wasn't. He knew a, a perfect performance. And so when they got done, he had that sense of accomplishment and he turned around and he took a bow and they applauded and he didn't tell them to stop. And he said, you know what, you are right. That was good. But he also knew, let's give credit where credit's due. I didn't compose the ninth. You didn't compose the ninth. That's Beethoven's music. All we're doing is playing something that somebody else wrote. So don't get too high on the hog here. Don't, don't start to think too much of yourself. All we're doing is playing what a, a brilliant man wrote. He had an understanding of who he was. He knew he was good, but he also had an understanding of who he wasn't. That's true for Tuscanini in a, a musical sense. The question before you and me is, do you know it in a spiritual sense, in an ultimate sense? Do you know who you are, and do you know who you aren't? Number three, why is John important? Why is he in this story? He knew what he was called to do. He knew what he was called to do. There's no question about his mission. Verse 25 this delegation asks him a question. Why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Notice they don't say, well, what's up with the baptism stuff? The question is not why are you baptizing, period. It's if you're not one of these important people, why are you baptizing? They knew about baptism. You are not going to read about baptism in the Old Testament. It just shows up in the New Testament. John's doing it. And in between Malachi and Matthew, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, people started practicing baptism. They based it off Ezekiel 36 where God said, I'm going to wash you with water and I'm going to make you clean. 
And the fascinating thing is between the Testaments, Gentile converts started baptizing themselves. The high priest didn't do the baptism. The Pharisees didn't do the baptisms. If a Gentile wanted to become a follower of Yahweh, they would get in a pool, they would dunk themselves, and that was their baptism. It was for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. Here's John the Baptist out in the wilderness telling all these Jewish people, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. And they're saying, wait a minute, that's not what baptism's all about. Baptism's for the dirty Gentiles. You think we need to do it? And who put you in charge of baptism? We've been doing it for a couple hundred years and we do it just fine ourselves. The Gentile gets in the pool and they go under and they come up and it's done. What are you doing inserting yourself into this process? Who do you think you are? That's the real question. Who gave you the right? On whose authority do you do this? Verse 25. To read it backwards. If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah or the prophet, then why are you baptizing? Why are you doing it? We've moved from the question of identity. Now we're talking about purpose. Why are you doing it? And John answered them. And he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know. He comes after me in the straps of his sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Did you notice he didn't answer their question? He didn't answer their question. He didn't say, well, this is who I am. This is who gave me the right. God gave me the right. He doesn't say that. He just says, I'm doing this. And there's something far greater coming. He doesn't even engage him on this issue. He knows who he is. He knows what God has called him to do. And he's going to do it, but he's going to point people to Jesus. That's the last idea I want you to see. John knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. And I want you to take your Bible, and I just want you to trace through with me. I want you to see some of the things that we read about Jesus here. Look at verse 20. If John the Baptist is not the Christ, the implication is Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. In verse 21, he's not the prophet. No. The assumption is Jesus is that prophet. He's the one Moses promised in Deuteronomy 18. Look at verse 23. You may have missed this. John said, I'm the one, the voice. I'm the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of who? The Lord. It's a title for God. I'm getting things ready for God to come. In John's mind, getting things ready for Jesus to come was exactly the same as getting things ready for God himself to step foot on this highway. I'm getting it ready for for the Lord, for God. Look at verse 30. He talks about Jesus coming after him, but he was also before him. The one who comes after me was before me. He's the eternal word from the prologue, the one who existed in the beginning, the one who created everything in the beginning. Look at verse 33. Who is Jesus? John knew he was the one empowered to give the Holy Spirit, to send the Holy Spirit, to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 34. I am bearing witness that this is the Son of God. And then the verse that I, I, I took your attention to earlier, John 1.29 He saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you know there's only two places in the entire Bible where Jesus is called the Lamb of God? You'll only find it in two books. You'll find it in this gospel, Gospel of John, 
and you find it in the very last book of the Bible, the book that John wrote at the end of his life, the book of Revelation. Something about this captivated John's mind. And he brings it up here. None of the other gospel writers bring it up. He alone brings it up. Paul never mentions it. Peter doesn't mention it. James doesn't mention it. Jude doesn't mention it. John brings it up again in the book of Revelation. He is listening. John, the author of the gospel, is listening. He's looking at John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is saying, This man is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it just got burned into his brain. He never moved past it. He's thinking about it. He's writing about it. Why is it so important that Jesus is the Lamb of God? Where does that come from? Only two books in the Bible say it explicitly. What's the background? I think part of the background is Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and his son Isaac are walking up Mount Moriah. Isaac looks to his dad and he says, Dad, we got the knife and we got the fire and we got the wood. We don't have a sacrifice. Where is it? And Abraham looks at his son and he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God's going to provide the lamb. Don't worry about it. And if you know the story, you know that Isaac walks down the mountain alive. Why? It's because God provided a ram. He provided the lamb caught in a thicket. And Isaac lived. I think that's in the background of this idea that Jesus is the Lamb of God. I think Exodus 12 is in the background of their minds as they say Jesus is the Lamb of God. You remember Moses and the Hebrews, they're getting ready to leave Egypt. It's the last night in Egypt. They're getting ready to check out, and it's the Passover. And God has said to them, the firstborn in every house is going to die, and there's only one way for you to avoid it. This is what he told them. Your Lamb shall be without blemish. And the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. And you take the blood and you smear it on the door. And if you do this, believing in God's promise, death will pass over you. You deserve to die. Just like Isaac, the firstborn, the unique son. He deserved to die. You deserve to die. And God is providing a way through the death of a lamb for death to pass over you. I think he's thinking about Leviticus 16. I know Leviticus 16 specifically talks about goats, but it talks about a a sacrifice and these two animals who were taken on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest takes the first, and he lays his hands on it, and he confesses the sins of the people, and they slit the throat, and they kill it. Then they take the second animal, and they lay their hands on it, and they confess the sins of the people, and they drive it out into the wilderness. And it's a picture repeated every year, that God is removing their sin. Sin leads to death, the first animal. And in the second animal, God is taking away your sin. And John picks up on that. He says, this is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to take your sin and to take the punishment for your sin. I think there's thinking about, rolling around in their head, Isaiah 53. It was just a few weeks ago we looked at Isaiah 52 and 3 at Christmas time. Isaiah says this, 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's the lamb, afflicted and crushed by the Father for our sins and our transgressions. All of these things floating around in the the head of John the Baptist. All of these things floating around in the head of John the Apostle. And he writes this story and he says, you know what? Matthew left this part out. Mark left it out. Luke left it out. I got to tell you what he said. He saw Jesus walking and he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning we take the Lord's Supper together. That's essentially what we're celebrating That the fulfillment of Genesis 22 and Exodus 12 and Leviticus 16 and Isaiah 53 and all of these passages, the fulfillments come. The Lamb came. John pointed to Him and he said, this is the one. It wasn't ever about the Day of Atonement. It wasn't ever about the tabernacle. It wasn't ever about the patriarchs. It wasn't ever about the Passover. It was always about Jesus. It's not about John the Baptist and the Jews and the disagreements they had. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the bread, we drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves His body was broken for our sin. His blood was shed for our sin. He's the one who came to seek us and to save us and to take our sin, to deal with it, to put it away from us. And this morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, if you are a follower of Jesus, and you've obeyed his command, you've responded in faith and obeyed his command to be baptized, we want you to participate with us. We want you to celebrate with us. We want you to be mindful that God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He sent the Lamb of God. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we're glad that you're here. We just ask that you take a few minutes while we celebrate the Lord's Supper to reflect, to read, to think about John 1, to think about your relationship with Jesus and what it would mean for you to become a follower of Jesus this morning. So I'm going to ask you to bow.